You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Joining the podcast is Dr. Augusto Miravalle, the chief of the section of multiple sclerosis at Rush. Dr. Miravalle's clinical and science-based research interests include multiple sclerosis, neuroimmunology, and dementias. He is an advocate in providing access to care in underserved populations, as well as improving medical education within the community. Our conversation today will touch on his advocacy work, the care that the Rush MS Center provides, and the importance of whole brain health for MS patients. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mervali. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure being here. Let's talk about the MS Center at Rush and the capabilities to diagnose and treat patients with MS. Can you expand on this a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So the Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroimmunology Center at Rush, it's the largest center in the Chicago area. We provide care to over 3,000 patients. Most of the patients have multiple sclerosis, but also we care of patients with other neuroimmunological disorders like neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, as well as MOG-associated disease or MOGAT. The center follows a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to the care of our patients in which we believe that every aspect of the care is important, anywhere from having access to highly effective therapies, but also paying attention to lifestyle interventions, nutrition, exercise, diet, all of these factors that actually have a profound effect on clinical outcomes and quality of life. So I want to ask you specifically about neuromyelitis optica, which is a rare autoimmune demyelinating disorder that can present similarly to MS and can cause optic neuritis, transverse myelitis, and area postrema syndrome. Since getting an accurate diagnosis is key, Let's talk about Russia's expertise in making a differential diagnosis for this condition. Absolutely. And, you know, Dan, this is very important because uh, there is a, usually there is a lag in between symptom onset and appropriate diagnosis in patients with NMOSD. And that, that delay could be as uh, severe as 10 to 11 years. Um, so often patients are misdiagnosed. Often patients uh, start with symptoms that actually they end up uh, seeing someone in ER and that uh, results in misdiagnosis or delay of care. So it is critical to have uh, specialized centers in which the providers have fellowship training or expertise in these rare disorders. Um, NMOSD can present with similar symptoms than multiple sclerosis, but also can have some atypical presentations. For example, intractable hiccups or nausea or vomiting. And those are symptoms that perhaps may persuade physicians in ER to refer patients to gastroenterology as opposed to a neurologist. So a good neuroimmunological center is going to be able to provide that expertise, uh, even in the cases of atypical presentations. Are there any other sort of symptoms that patients with NMO have that could also lead to a misdiagnosis outside of the hiccups that you mentioned? Right. So the most common presentation is optic neuritis, which is presenting usually with blurry vision. 
and that blurry vision can evolve very rapidly to complete loss of vision and is usually painful. Patients often describe painful eye movements. In terms of NMOSD, that optic neuritis could present in both sides simultaneously. So it's a bilateral optic neuritis, which in multiple sclerosis is usually unilateral. It's usually one side or the other. The other clinical presentation that NMOSD patients may have is what we call transverse myelitis or lesions in the spinal cord. And often these lesions presents with bilateral leg weakness or numbness or loss of sensation, but also could have some atypical presentations like bladder or bowel symptoms, like a frequency in urination or incontinence. And then there is a group of patients that can present with what we call brainstem lesions. And those lesions are in the brainstem, which is the lower part of the brain that connects to the spinal cord. And in that case, patients can present with hiccups, with nausea, vomiting, as we were describing. But also they can have other presentations like double vision, difficulty with balance. Sometimes the lesions can affect central parts of the brain. We call them the diencephalic structures, like the thalamus. And in that case, patients can present with hypersomnolence or fatigue or periods in which they have a, an altered sleep cycle. Uh, they can present, for example, with a thermal dysregulation, difficulty keeping temperatures in the body. So those are some atypical presentations, and we need to be educated on them and aware that if patients have these symptoms, that might prompt, for example, doing more analysis with an MRI or some blood tests. Would it be fair to say that part of making that differential diagnosis is the expertise of the physicians with the EMS center who are attuned to recognize those symptoms? Absolutely. So when you look at studies that evaluate the factors that lead to uh, delaying care, the number one is having access to a specialized center. So on the therapy side, what treatments do you employ for NMOSD and how effective are they? So we currently have three FDA-approved medications for NMOSD, and those medications are very effective, actually. We, we went from not having anything available to all of a sudden having three options that are highly effective. And the way they work is they cause a selective suppression of certain immune cells that are known to play a role in the pathology of the disease. So those are immune suppressants. They have different um, mechanism of actions. They have different frequency. We have options that are subcutaneous. We have options that are intravenous. And the frequency range anywhere from one treatment every six months to one infusion every two weeks. So what we do as part of the care is we meet with patients, we explain these options, and we try to um, personalize the care to many factors, including you know how the disease presents, but also where the patient preference, lifestyle. Some patients may prefer not to have infusions every two weeks, and they say, well, you know, I travel a lot to work, so perhaps an infusion every six months is more appropriate. The earlier a patient is diagnosed with NMOSD, the better, obviously. But for patients who are delayed later, I'm wondering, does the effectiveness of those infusion therapies lessen after that delayed diagnosis, or is the effectiveness of those treatments the same? That's an excellent question. So the efficacy of the medication remains the same. However, we know that the number one strategy that we have to help our patients with NMOSD is to prevent relapses, to prevent lesions. We know that most of the accumulation of disability that our patients suffer comes from an incomplete recovery from a relapse. Those relapses can 
lead to devastating consequences, sometimes complete blindness of difficulty ambulating or, or having to use a wheelchair. So all we can do is to prevent relapses. So it's critical that we establish a diagnosis as soon as possible after the onset of symptoms and we start appropriate therapies uh, as soon as we can so we can prevent any subsequent relapses in the future. And do we have data on the effectiveness of those therapies for NMOSD? Yes, so all three medications have been approved by the FDA, and that approval came as a consequence of reviewing phase three clinical trial data that the medications were tested in humans with a seropositive NMOSD, and it was established efficacy that was superior to placebo. All three medications do have that supports their uh, clinical usefulness. So moving outside of our conversation on infusion therapy for MS patients or patients with NMOSD, Overall, brain health and wellness is key to helping those patients enjoy a good quality of life and also to help them extend that quality of life for many years. Can you elaborate why that's so important for that commitment to overall brain health? Absolutely. So there is a, an interest in brain health overall in the neurological community, but it's my personal interest. It's been the focus of my career for the last 10 years in trying to understand how we can not only prevent disease from happening, but most importantly, how we, we can enhance and promote the optimal function of the brain. And that is uh, all these activities that we were discussing before, anywhere from lifestyle interventions, the use of exercise, a healthy nutrition, sleep, um, treatment of comorbidities, for example, hypertension or diabetes or obesity. All of those factors we know that play a role in the optimal function of the brain. So brain health, in a sense, is a term that is being used to describe all the activities, whether it's uh, lifestyle activities, healthcare-related activities, that will influence the optimal function of the brain. So to me, it seems like those things that you talked about are just good common sense ways for a person to take care of themselves in general. So I'm wondering, is this approach novel? Has there been a renewed focus on focusing on overall brain health and wellness recently? And, and what are the reasons why? Yeah, the reasons why is because now finally we start to have evidence-based information that allow us to not only recommend these strategies, but also be able to personalize that to an individual, right? So most of the things we do in medicine are supported by the evidence. Uh, so moving on from what you described, using common sense to now being able to say, well, we have studies that showed if you exercise uh, 150 minutes a week, and if that exercise is diverse with a, a combination of aerobic exercise plus weight training, um, if you have multiple sclerosis, you're going to have benefits in X, Y, or Z. So now there is all this body of evidence that has been published in the last decade that is allowing us to have data that we can support the recommendations of the use of these interventions. And the same is true with nutritional strategies, right? It is extremely difficult to do studies when you evaluate nutrition because, as you can imagine, it's hard to enroll patients that will eat the same type of approach for a long period of time without any variations. So these studies actually took a long time to truly build a body of evidence that will allow us to truly have some degree of research data that can allow us to make these recommendations. So now that's happening. So now that slowly we are starting to see publications that are giving us this support to the recommendations of lifestyle interventions. 
Do you think we could do a little bit of a, a detour and look at maybe some of the data that's particularly interesting to you around some of those lifestyle changes that patients could make? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So basically what we know is that in terms of, for example, exercise, uh, let's talk about multiple sclerosis, for example. There are many uh, studies that actually showed a benefit not only in improving muscle strength, but also improving walking performance, improving balance, decreased fatigue, decreased depression. But also the use of exercise also has been linked to improve health-related quality of life. When you go more into how exercise can benefit the disease itself, so in multiple sclerosis patients, we often look at things like relapse rate, how many clinical events patients had, how many lesions patients accumulate over time. So when exercise is used as a planned structural intervention, right? So uh, not just simply saying, well, I'm going to walk the dog one day and then I'm going to do nothing the next day. So when you have this routine of exercise that is planned, is structured and repetitive, uh, patients with multiple sclerosis were found to have less likelihood of relapses, have decreased likelihood of new lesions on MRI. But perhaps the most impressive part is that they have decreased chances of brain volume loss, something that we call atrophy. So when you start looking at these, these outcomes, they are not that different to the outcomes we start to see in some of the pharmacological interventions. The fascinating part of all of this is that if you can truly get to the point in which we can offer our patients a combination of strategies, right? So from one hand, uh, try to decrease inflammation with the use of highly effective therapies. That's important. But on the other hand also, what can we do to enhance those benefits through lifestyle interventions that are actually targeted to any patient's need that are actually methodical, structured. We should be using exercise as another way of medical intervention. I'm curious, what about on the nutrition side of things? Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, so in terms of multiple sclerosis, what we know is that there is a connection between the gut and the brain, and that applies to many, many areas in medicine. But in MS, that gut-brain connection has been studied with quite a lot of interest in the last decade. And what we know is that the gut microbiome, so those bacteria that we have in the gut that helps regulate so many things, uh, has a key role in regulating immune responses and inflammatory responses. What we eat is going to have a profound effect on that microbiome, but also things like smoking is going to cause more inflammation. So the diet that has the strongest evidence to be beneficial in multiple sclerosis is the so-called Mediterranean diet uh, that is high in leafy greens and vegetables as well as high in fruit. Uh, Mediterranean diet also includes things like grains, for example, and it, it try to decrease the content of trans fats or animal-based uh, trans fats. Uh, so those are the, the recommendations that we're starting to see that play a role in multiple sclerosis. I know one of your passions as a provider is to provide access to care for underserved populations. Can you elaborate on what specific aspects of care fall through the cracks for underserved groups, as well as identifying what groups you're trying to target. Yeah, so as, as you know, the optimal care in multiple sclerosis, and I will argue in medicine in general, but in MS that applies, is what we call personalized care. Try to say, well, we know that one model does not fit all patients. Every patient is unique. And one of those factors that determine that personalized care is race, 
ethnicity, but also uh, determinants of health. And those are the social determinants of health, whether it's socioeconomical status, um, access to housing, for example. So all of those factors will play a role in the overall outcomes. So it's been a passion of mine to try to not only understand that in terms of the clinic, be able to provide support services that uh, will allow patients from you know, marginalized groups or patients with a difficulty with access to healthcare to have at least some way to get access to things like education, uh, access to resources. It's important to be cognizant of those differences. Um, when it comes to the disease itself, we know that race, for example, plays a role in not only in increasing or decreasing the risk of multiple sclerosis, but also when someone has multiple sclerosis, the different races, for example, are linked to different outcomes. We've known that, for example, African-Americans or Blacks, they tend to have worse clinical outcomes, and that's independent on any type of access differences to healthcare. The same is true with Hispanics. They have a more prevalence of certain uh, manifestations like spinal cord disease, which naturally will lead to uh, higher rates of disability. And so armed with this knowledge, what are some of the specific things that you and Rush are trying to do to address those issues? Well, one of the things that was uh, very attractive for me to come to Rush was the fact that uh, Rush University has established a tradition of patient-centered care. And I believe that it has the resources that are going to be uh, very beneficial and helpful for us to truly build that comprehensive multidisciplinary approach in which we understand that every patient is unique and we are paying attention to not only the physical exam and the MRI, but we'll pay attention to things like ethnicity, race, social issues, social determinants of health, comorbidities. We'll look at diet, nutrition, interventional uh, strategies that goes beyond just simply medication and being able to take one patient at a time and provide that unique personalized care. We are starting a program called the Brain Health Program at Rush, and that's going to include three components. One is the brain health clinic, and in that clinic, patients will have access to a one-on-one -on -one consultation with a brain health expert, and that person is going to take an intake questionnaire and understand what are the patient's needs and develop a personalized plan, whether it's through exercise intervention, nutrition intervention, but also sleep and medication management uh, to address those issues. The program also includes a, a second component, which is a brain health educational program. And those are going to be a series of educational offerings, anywhere from webinars to monthly meetings to three-week brain health programs for patients to enroll. And there is absolutely no additional cost to any of these things. The third component is a brain health research program in which patients have the option to enroll and have personalized data that is, is shared with patients in real time, but also longitudinally, we can follow and track how these interventions are affecting individualized outcomes. In regards to social determinants of health, what would you say is the first key step in helping providers better address patients' needs in this area? I think awareness is the first step in addressing a problem. So understanding the problem, understanding that these social determinants are real and are present, being able to provide comprehensive care to any and everyone, regardless of their social status, regardless of their income, regardless of their access or not to healthcare or health insurance. I think those are concrete examples of that. Also having providers that are educated and aware of the fact that race plays a critical role 
in healthcare outcomes. And you'll be surprised nowadays that uh, there are centers in which providers will argue that race is a social construct and by such it has no influence in, in clinical outcomes. So being mindful of that, being aware of it, is the first step in making a difference. As an example, we offer a fellowship training program here and our fellowship director uh, has an interest in his career, uh, Dr. Sierra Morales, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So part of the fellowship training includes uh, research and education on diversity, equity, inclusion, and social determinants of health. So I think this is a, a good segue to my last series of questions for you around medical education, which is another passion of yours. So despite the overwhelming amount of information that's available online about MS or MS care, misinformation can be spread pretty easily. Right. I'm just wondering, what are some of the issues that you've encountered with patients who are coming to you who are misinformed? Yeah, so as you know, data is available. There is a difference between data and information. Information is an active process of looking at the data and determining is this evidence-based, is this opinion-based, or this is just flat-out misinformation. Information itself doesn't constitute knowledge. So knowledge is when we are able to identify these individual pieces of information and link them together into a story. And then knowledge itself doesn't equate to healthcare literacy. So healthcare literacy is the next step, right? So in which you're able to look at the knowledge and say, okay, let's apply that to a goal. So helping our patients to improve their healthcare literacy is, is been my focus of the last 10 years, again, in medical education, being able to say, well, can we improve healthcare outcomes by the way we provide education to our patients? Can we improve healthcare literacy? It's the number one challenge is time. It's extremely difficult to accomplish that in the outpatient visit. And that's the wrong context. Patients, when they come to the clinic, they have a list of their complaints, or the, the things they want to ask, and perhaps they're not ready to be educated. So we have to take medical education outside of the clinic. And that's why we are offering as part of this brain health program, a series of educational offerings that are going to be number one. The number one goal for that is to improve healthcare literacy. Are there any metrics that you use to evaluate how successful those outreach efforts are? Yeah, and we have those metrics and we've been publishing those. We do a baseline assessment and then we do an assessment after the educational intervention to assess things like confidence in discussing, for example, the use of disease-modifying therapies with my provider, um, understanding of the difference between MS worsening and deconditioning, but also things like understanding what is brain reserve and what are the factors that influence brain health. Um, so we have all this information and we had an overwhelming improvement in patients when they complete these educational offerings before and after in terms of their overall healthcare literacy. It seems to me that better informed patients also tie in with overall brain health and wellness that we spoke about earlier. I'm just wondering, anecdotally, have you noticed that patients who then are more informed about how their disease can progress and troublesome signs to watch out for, that kind of thing, has that led to better quality of life outcomes for those patients? Yes, not only my opinion, as well as a matter of fact, is one of the priorities for the overall neurology community to improve healthcare literacy because it's, it's been demonstrated that patients who have higher level of literacy, they do better in medicine. So they have better clinical outcomes, they have better understanding of the importance of these type of lifestyle interventions. To be honest, it is one thing is for doctors to tell patients you need to eat healthy. That 
may or may not translate into patients changing their diet, which is extremely difficult. So we need to move on from doctors telling to more of a, a shared decision making in which this is a process, a process in which it takes time, but ultimately the goal will be that through education, we can actually help patients make those meaningful changes in their life that are known to have benefits in the overall clinical outcomes in the future. My last question, is this proactive approach to get out in front of the community to provide this medical education, is this a commonplace type of phenomenon that exists in hospitals overall, or is this something that's more unique? I know you were ahead of the game, so to speak, for a long time, and this being priority for you as a clinician. So I'm just wondering if you could comment about that aspect. Well, it's not new. If you if you know what the meaning of doctor is, the root of the word means to teach. So doctors were known to be uh, individuals in society that the number one function, even prior to having medications, was to teach, to educate. Uh, so this is not new. However, we have been as a community distracted in the last you know 100 years in looking at medications or pharmacological interventions as the main function by which we exist. But the truth is that we should continue with that. I think the pharmacological development have led to significant improvements and benefits in overall health. But we shouldn't forget the fact that education and patient education being in the community has also equally profound benefits. Dr. Miravalli, thank you so much for a very informative conversation today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.